I have nothing clever or funny this morning, so we're just going to dive right in. With Exodus 24, we have fully transitioned out of the law-giving phase. And again, as I mentioned last week, I enjoyed the laws if nobody else did. So that, that's on you if you didn't have fun, because I had lots of fun. What we have learned, though, is God is very patient. We've seen this throughout his dealings with Israel. Every chance they have had, they have gone astray and walked in the wrong direction. And yet God continues to persevere with them and preserve them. Now, God is patient, not because he demonstrates patience, but because he is the standard and source of patience. Always remember that distinction. We don't call God patient because he has done patient things. We expect him to do patient things because he is, in and of himself, patient. Now, that means we have seen rightly he is patient with sin, but he is also patient with his planning. And that is one of the things that we have to make sure that we carry over. After you have been presented with the law, the how now shall I live, what must you then do? You have to decide how you yourself are going to walk. How now shall we live, right? How do we live? How do we walk in light of this? Because what Israel has been given is this is the way things should go. They will go well with you if you walk in this manner. That requires you when you are confronted with that choice to do what though? Walk in that manner. Which means we are beginning to embark on a test for Israel. Based on past experience, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Enter Exodus 24, where they're going to get their chance to make a decision. So let's read this, and then we'll make some sense of it. Then he said to Moses, this is God speaking, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient." So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. 
The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And I am just now realizing that my voice is a little gravelly today, so this could be interesting. We're liable to be done in about 20 minutes. I'm sure you will all just be devastated by that, right? (laughs) So let's rewind back to the beginning. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord. This is not a small thing. We are literally, and I am literally using the word literally correctly today. (laughs) Now, like when people go literally, we're being serious. We are literally getting closer to God. We are closing the physical distance between the people of God and God. This is a big deal. If you go back to Exodus 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Remember, Moses is a mediator of the people. He is operating on their behalf. They, as the sinful people, are being set back. Moses, as the mediator, stands before God as that people. This is not a new concept in your Old Testament. When you go all the way back to the garden, this is what Paul is trying to explain in Romans when he's explaining sin coming into all humanity in Romans 3. All sin because all of humanity was in Adam. He was our representative before God. So we failed because the person who was in charge of us failed. This is good news because we we likewise succeed Not because we are good, but because the person in charge of us has succeeded. Where our one representative, Adam, has failed, our second representative, Christ, has succeeded. Hence the 40 days and 40 nights thing. You ever wonder what that whole business is about? Where Israel fails in the wilderness, Christ succeeds in the wilderness. Where Adam Adam fails in temptation, Christ succeeds. Where the sacrifice of bulls and goats can temporarily set aside the remittance of sin, where it can temporarily remind you that there is a sacrifice coming. Christ can offer the final sacrifice, undoing sin and its power and its effect for the people of God. Where there is death throughout human life, throughout human interaction, because of the work of people, there is in Christ life because of what he has accomplished. That is beginning here. Once again, go back to the garden. Where are Adam and Eve in communion with God? Sorry, sorry, terrible question. In what way do Adam and Eve have communion with God? Is he just some far-off thing? No. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They see God. They know him. They speak with him. When sin enters, what happens? They are cast out of the garden, cast out of the presence of God. All of humans' interactions from that point forward are what? They're in some way mediated. There's a burning bush, there's a voice, there's a symbol, there's something, there's some other thing. And very rarely do you have what? A face-to-face interaction. And when you do have it, what's the reaction of people? I've seen God and I'm alive. Yay! He didn't kill me. Because they recognize that they are not able or worthy of standing in that place. As Israel has been given the law, as Israel has been redeemed of God, they themselves are physically moving closer to God. The culmination of this for the Old Testament would have been the trivia question. 
So as Solomon prays, what happens? The glory of the Lord comes down and fills the temple. God dwelling in the capital in the midst of his people. In the New Testament, this is, this is carried even further. What's the ultimate fulfillment of this? God's tabernacle is among men. In what way? He's not in a tent. He's not in a brick and mortar temple. He's in what kind of temple? Us. The Holy Spirit indwelling believers. Communion between God and his people. Now that ultimate final barrier is removed when we stand in his kingdom and we see and we behold face to face. The mirror darkly is removed, as Paul talks about, and we see and we know in full. That's where we're progressing. That's what sanctification is about. It's about us cooperating with the, with the testimony that the Spirit is giving us from God so that we are growing in grace, mercy, and holiness so that we are, as much as we can on this side of the veil, showing the power and the presence of God in our lives, knowing fully that that will be how we live. You're getting a small picture of that right here. Now, notice something else. Moses, he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Is Moses going all of this alone? The answer is no. Because it wouldn't be good for Moses to do this alone. Proverbs 11. Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. We've seen this before when Moses' father-in-law showed up. Moses is trying to run everything. And what's eventually going to happen? <laughs> he, and Jethro looks at this and be like, this, this isn't good. Now, if you're Moses, you're thinking you're doing a good thing. Because who's the prophet? Moses is. Who's the one who's seen God? Moses has. Who's the one who converses with him? It's Moses. How in the world should I, could I expect anybody else to do what I do when they haven't seen the things that I have seen? You just explained the church for the last 2,000 years. Because what would have been the, the apostles' lament? How could we expect anybody else to know what we know and to do what we are supposed to do when they haven't seen the things that we've seen? They haven't sat at the feet of Christ. They weren't taught of him. They didn't watch the miracles. They didn't do any of this which is why the first thing they started doing in the church was what? They started writing a Bible. What's the goal? The goal is to reproduce the knowledge and the wisdom that Christ imparted, to give that to each successive generation. This is called discipleship. This is the building up of not just the next generation, but the current generation. My people perish for a lack of Knowledge, wisdom, however you want to translate it. That's what we're supposed to be passing on. This is why I joke about the trivia question. I do want you to know the answer, but I want you to know the why behind the answer as well, because that's much more important. Because if you just get the answer and then someone asks you the question, you give them the answer, and then what happens to the conversation? It's the end of it. We're done here. But if I know that there's a story behind it, now you want to talk about generational differences. You know what I keep getting, I keep laughing about social media posts. When I see young, uh, posts from younger people on social media, you know what they want? Story time. They want the story. Don't just tell me what happened. Tell me, don't just tell me, hey, I went to the store and this lady yelled at me. Why? And then, well, after she yelled at you, then what do you want to know? Well, then what happened? Did anything happen? What did the manager do? Did the store change anything? Did you leave? I want to know 
all of that. Christian, this is how we share the wisdom of Scripture, is we don't just know the story, we know the why of the story so that we can give it a richness, we can give it a context and a history so that there's actually some meat there. There's something to gnaw on for the brain so that we can go, hey, there's a reason to have this knowledge. It's not just some drive-by, trivial pursuit thing. There's actually an effect on my life, your life, and the lives of everybody around us. That's why we have the elders. Moses isn't expected to do this himself because he can't. And not just that, it would be improper for him to even attempt to. Instead, teach Aaron. Teach his sons. Teach the elders so that they can then do what? Teach and teach and teach and teach and teach. Numbers 11. The Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them. They shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it alone. You see the beginnings of that work right here. Keep moving, verse 2. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Moses is still set apart, though. Why? This is our big theological word in Sunday school today. It's a picture. It's typology. He 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 is showing and picturing the work of Christ. John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Christ was unique in this. I mean, who can explain God, in all honesty? Well, no. I would go with there's, there's one person who can explain God. <laughs> because he is God. See, I can give you partial. I can give you knowledge to the best of my ability. I'm limited. What am I limited to? Let's ask this. We've asked this, we haven't asked this question yet, not in this way. What is the limiting factor on my knowledge of God and theology that I can give you on a Sunday morning? Scripture is. I can't go beyond this, because if I go beyond this, where am I? <laughs> I have no idea. And you know what you don't want me to do? To be in my ideas. I've told you before, my ideas are terrible. I have to live with them. I know how bad they are. You don't want them. I don't want them. We want to stand on a good foundation. Um, The analogy years ago that I heard, brilliant explanation of this. The bug in the jar will never understand the boy who put him there. When it comes to God, we're the bug in the jar. We are. The only reason we can comprehend who God is is because he has condescended to tell us. This is why, you, this is why we use both a, a good and a positive and a negative example from the same thing. So humanity has an innate knowledge of God. This can be seen in the fact that just about every society in human history does what? What do they create? They create a religion of some shape, form, and fashion because we know that there is something beyond us. 
But conversely, without the special revelation of God, without knowledge given from Him, what do we do? We worship bugs and the sun and the moon and the stars and the river and the... (laughs) Because we can't make sense of this place. We just can't do it. We try, but we just can't do it. We need the extra information that God provides. And he alone can provide it because he alone can explain who he is and what he is doing in this world. Short of that, we have nothing. Moses gives you a picture of this because while the elders are going to do the discipling work, the revelatory information from God is going to come through one mediator, one prophet, one messenger, preparing you for the messenger that is to come. Fast forward to John 3. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man may be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. See, what was the reason why you trusted this mediator? If you're Israel, why are you doing anything that Moses said? Well, he spoke to God. He proved it with the miraculous works, right? If you were the apostles, what was the reason you were following Christ? He spoke the word of God, and look, he proved it with all of these works. And at the end of that journey with Moses, if you followed Moses, what did you receive? You crossed the Red Sea. You received the manna. You were given the good land. You got a picture of redemption. And if you follow Christ, what do you receive? You receive the covering for sin, the grace of God, the everlasting promise of righteousness and life. You receive redemption, not in picture, but in full. That's what's going on here. That's why Moses is being set apart. We're preparing for how many redeemers? One. Not 27. One. Therefore, Israel is being shown that because God's people are being shown that. I already changed pages. That would have been bad. Verse 3. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. This is in keeping with his work as the deliverer. This is in keeping with the typological work of Moses. John 7 again. The officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said, and the chief priests and the Pharisees said, why did you not bring him? Talking about Jesus. And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Like, we went to arrest him, but he was teaching us, and it was just like. And then he was done, and he left, and we left, and it was like, oh yeah, we were supposed to arrest that guy. We just, it just wasn't there. The Israelites are in the same boat here, because who else has the teachings of God? Moses has them. Who else has the commandments that lead to life? Nobody. Moses has them. So Moses comes and recounts them, because if Moses doesn't, who would? Exactly. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do they have any idea what they just signed up for? (laughs) I see, I would agree with you. Now here's the problem. Should they? Should they have some idea of what they've signed up for? Now, can you justify that? And I would say the answer is yes. Luke 14. 
Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Likewise, before you go off to battle, what do you do? You look how many soldiers you've got, and you see how many soldiers the other guy's got, and you start doing the math and going, okay, he's got more than we do, but is it too many more than we do, or we have more than you do? Because you start thinking what? Well, nobody wants to go into battle to do what? Lose. Because <laughs> if we go into battle and we lose, what typically happens? We die, and we're usually very fond of living. So I, want, I, I, I like living. I've done it as long as I can remember. I would like to keep doing it. So before I go into battle, I don't like suicide missions. These are, Jesus uses these as examples of you following him in sanctification. Why? Because what happens to the person who just goes hip-hopping, skipping along into Christian living without the aid of the Holy Spirit, without knowing what they have signed up for? Where, pray tell, does that lead them? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just that it leads to the eternal destiny. It leads to a problem not just then, but in the here and now. Mark 4. Jesus said to them, Do you not understand the parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road when the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which is sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. When they hear the word, it immediately springs with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves and are only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. In other words... It doesn't just damage them, it damages everybody. Because we were counting on you, and then the persecution came, and where were you? Or you were running the good race, and then when it came time to choose between Christ and the world, you chose the world, and we were counting on you. This is why understanding who is around you in Christian living becomes so important. This is where the one another's matter so much. We are supposed to count on one another. We are supposed to build community as Christians, but that means we have to also be as innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. Which means if you talk the talk, but you don't ever seem to be walking the walk, you know what we're not doing with you? We're not using you as part of the foundation. This is why there's qualifications to be an elder. This is why there's qualifications to be a deacon. This is why there's qualifications for you, day in and day out, to check yourself in the faith. Because I want to make sure that the people counting on me can actually do what? Count on me. I want to make sure the people I'm counting on can be counted upon because we are being built together by the Holy Spirit. We are being assembled. And if you're lying to me about that, then I'm going to think you're filling a need that is not being filled. And it is, in fact, a need in the kingdom. It is a need in the church. It is a need in your life. And if we put ourselves in that position, we are not doing the good work. Be careful. Which is why I said a couple weeks ago, I said what? Ask tough questions of you and the people around you. 
Because there's going to come a point in every Christian's life where they're going to have to make decisions. They're going to have to give advice. And we want to make sure it is grounded upon the right thing. And the way we do that is not then go, okay, what do I do here? No, it's by having been prepared day by day, year by year, decade by decade, so that when the time comes, there's not a question. We already know. The yes was put in way back there, and we have done the work since then. Not by hiding, not by deceit, but by actually walking in faith. That's what Israel should do. Who here thinks they did that? (laughs) Exactly. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Guess which part of that jumps off the page at me? He wrote down all the words of the Lord. There's your pattern for the people of God. This is how we know what's going on. 2 Peter 1 is one of our hallmarks. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Our other explanation verse that we've used as we've gone through Exodus is 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Always remember, that's the context that bleeds into this. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Always notice what Paul is hearkening back to. It's not just a, hey, well, you know, temptation's coming, but God won't let me be tempted beyond what I can handle. Notice how that works? There's a way of escape. And I've always told you that sometimes you know what that way of escape is? Sometimes it's death. (laughs) Sometimes you are faithful to the end. And actually, you know what? That's going to be true for everybody. Because you know what the survival rate of life is? (laughs) Zero. No one survives life. We don't like to think like that, but it's true. Which means, and well, here's the other part of this. Do do you know how many of us die in terrible, painful ways? Most. Most of us. Pneumonia. Cancer. Bodies breaking down. Ruptured discs. You know, all... Neurological disorders, I mean, the, the, the effects of sin as they corrupt and destroy the body are horrific. And yet, Christians don't get bailed out on this. We get what? We get the strength and the wisdom and the ability to walk through the midst of them. This is one of the things we're supposed to be preparing for, Christian. Prepare yourself now for those days because they are not fun. And if you have been through them with a loved one, you know what I'm talking about. You know that there is a mercy and a grace for God then, not now. But that mercy and grace there is built upon the preparation that comes before. It's not a matter of, I'm not afraid of anything. No, I'm afraid of all sorts of things. But I'm more afraid of God in his judgment than I am anything else. Therefore, I walk trusting in his work and trusting in his grace. And I spend my time now filling my mind and my heart and my soul with the good things of God so that when the time comes, the things that come flying out of me are not the things that the world has put in, but the things that 
God has given me in preparation for those times. That's the preparatory work of God's people. Those are the things we're signing up for. When we sign up as Christians, we're not signing up for everything to go well. We're signing up for us to do well when everything goes sideways. And that requires effort. That requires wisdom. And that requires a strength that we don't have outside of God. So when we sign up, we sign up for God's will, not mine. We sign up for his power to carry me through, not my own. And I don't always know we think like that. And so I warn, because that's the example of the Israelites. That's the, successful, the, the successful encounter with temptation is built upon not our power, but our trust recognizing that God has written down the examples. He has shown us his success and their failure so that when the time comes, we lean on what? Him and not us. Ah, so, verse 5. We built the pillars. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Now, with everything that has been done, what should be the result of the people? What should they be doing? God has given you a law. God has made a covenant with you. God has prepared you for what is to come. What should your response be? Praise, let's praise. It's worship time. That's the beginning of what's going on here. Now, why is it so gory? <laughs> you may be asking yourself. Hebrews chapter 9. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is only valid when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. They have to enter into relationship with God. Can they do that? Can they do that? The answer is no. They can't stand before him. They can't enter into contract. They are wretches. They are sinful. They cannot stand before him unless they are covered by a sacrifice. Once again, lessons being taught that are moving them forward. If you want to understand your Old Testament sacrificial system, read Hebrews. It will do you very good because it, it is basically an exposition. Again, official position. You ready? We're, I'll do it like I did the business meeting. There, we've made the ruling. Official position is that Hebrews is a sermon of Paul written down by Luke. I'm, I'm dying on that hilltop. Well, not really, but I'm, I'm very forced upon it. How about that? What is that? Got to love the wires going building. There we go again. Okay. Maybe I just don't look down. How about that? Okay. <laughs> I didn't even hear, I didn't even hear that when I was like, all of a sudden, am I the only, all of a sudden I was like, this, I had a background soundtrack on. <laughs> Apparently you guys are in charge of the musical accompaniment today. Dan had announcement time. You got sermon time. <laughs> there you go. It's all right. You'll be Okay. <laughs> It breaks my train of thought, but it doesn't bug me. Does that make any sense? So you're all right. I'm all right. Anyway, uh, Paul, uh, an orthodox, 
knowledgeable Jewish convert to Christ is sitting there expounding on the law that he has spent years studying and explaining how the sacrifices and the covenant with God was not the end-all be-all, but it was pointing to what was and is the end-all be-all, which is the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. That's what Hebrews is trying to give you. That's where the exposition of this is going on. The basins are meant to be a marker for the altar. It is a collection. They are sprinkling on the altar as a mark that God has been offered blood. The sacrifice has been made. That's why he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. We already went to the altar, now we're going to the people. So the offering has been made to God and it has been made to do what? To cover not him, to cover them. Now, real quick, go back, uh, sorry, we didn't go back yet, so go forward to verse 7. When he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So we had to go forward to go back, now we got to go forward again. What was the starting point here? What are we doing? In order for you to agree, what must you first know? You ever bought a house? It's annoying, isn't it? You know why? Because they bring in 7,482 pages, and then they tell you, this one says this. All right, put your initial right there. This one says this, sign that one. This one, you're like, and part of you really says what? I want to read that. And then you look at the stack of papers and realize how many things you sign, and you do what? Never mind. <laughs> For a moment, I wanted to read it, and then I was okay. Yeah, I, I had a good lawyer. He's like, all right, basically, these are the paperwork that say you get keys, and this is the paperwork that says you're broke. I'm like, okay, that makes sense to me. What are, what are, where do we sign? <laughs> God doesn't operate like that. Moses sits down and does what? All those laws that we've just spent the last couple weeks covering, Moses writes them down and then does what? Reads. When you sign up, you're supposed to be signing up with full knowledge. So again, when Israel says we're in, what they're saying is they're in with what aspect of their life? All of it. We asked this question last week. What part of that little picture, that little segment of law that we got in the, uh, those chapters in Exodus that we've been going through? Because that's not even the full expansion that they'll get in Leviticus in, um, in a few weeks. Well, a few weeks for us and a few weeks for them actually, because 40 days and 40 nights. That little picture what avenue of their life didn't it cover? It covered how they relate to their families. It covered how they relate to one another. It covers how they do business. It covers how they operate in legal cases. It covers theft, murder, contract law, poverty. I mean, it covered everything. What they're signing up when they say, we're in, what they're saying is, God ruling over all of our lives. Yes, that is what we would like. By the way, Christian, what part of that has changed? Luke chapter 9. Jesus said to them, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom. In other words, when you say you're going to work, what do you do? Hebrews chapter 10. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which, cons- which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Kind of puts things in perspective there, doesn't it? Yes, ouch. This is why we talk about with Christian living the intent of the heart. Because how many of you are perfect? How many of you? Where's Jonathan, right? He's in Michigan somewhere. The fact that he's in Michigan shows that he's not sinless, right? (laughs) No sinless one would get shipped off to Michigan, especially Detroit. There you go. That's our story and we're sticking to it. So does that mean that we have trampled underfoot the Son of God and despised the Spirit? Not necessarily. When you find out about your sin, how do you act? That is what tells who you are and where you are, and why you are. Because the person who starts to make excuses, the person who starts to give you justifications, you know what they love? They love themselves and their sin. You know what they don't love? They don't love God and his sacrifice. The person who repents, the person who wars against it, the person who, as I keep joking, kills it and kills it with fire, you know what they love? They love God more than themselves and more than their sin. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't even mean they're good as the world would define good. It means they are right in the sight of God, that their righteousness comes from him and not them. That's the message of Hebrews 10. That's what they're supposed to be signing up for. That's what the law was always meant to do. The law of the Old Testament was never, well, you know, went down the street, you know, took my horses and mules and ran over 27 kids with my chariot. And so now I got to go down to the temple and offer some sacrifice. You know what the priest would say to that? Get out. And by the way, where are the people hunting him down for, for his execution? Be like, well, I've come to offer sacrifice for my sins. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You're supposed to war against your sin. You're supposed to be driving your chariot down the middle of the road and go, I really want to run that guy over, but I shouldn't because that would be bad. That would be wrong, and I don't want to do wrong things. See, I figured I'd pick on the chariots instead of the cars for once. It's not working, is it? (laughs) Honestly, I'm not that angry of a driver. My wife can vouch for this. Cameron, I need some vouching. I was much worse, you know, 20 years ago. See, there you go. Baby steps. My great celebration was about four or five years ago where we got stuck in a little traffic jam. And I can tell you, you don't talk about random things that stick into your brain. This was um, 2017, just shortly after we had moved here. And I was um, driving up Alpine. And I can never get the road right. It's, um, it's Spring Brook. Yeah, Spring, Spring Brook coming up Alpine, going across. And for whatever reason, something had happened in that intersection. It was bogged down. And we were going along beautifully. And all of a sudden, it's like screeching halt. And the kids from the back seat, oh, come on. What are these numbskulls doing? And I'm like, yes, yes. They said numbskull. That's the word they learned in the car with me. Yes. Because if they had been born 10 years earlier, they would have learned a whole different vocabulary. Because look, I'm honest about this. I tell people I was raised by an alcoholic naval veteran, which means I was literally raised by a drunken sailor. And all that comes with it. 
like yeah when I, I was I went to uh, when we moved to North Carolina my uh, they looked at the because I was a public school kid in Connecticut and moved to North Carolina so they looked at the local public school and they found out that the year we moved that the uh, the average SAT score for graduating students of that high school was 720 that's not good my parents were like, we are not putting our kid in that school. So they scrounged money and my grandparents paid. I ended up going to the, where we lived outside of town. There was, um, there was a small Christian school, which was hysterical because I was raised by two atheists. But they, they paid money for years for me to go to a private Christian school that, you know, had like 500 people in it, K to 12. And so they sent me, the atheist, you know, drunken sailor vocabulary kid to the Christian school. So when all the kids wanted to learn how to curse and what the words meant, guess who they came and asked? <laughs> Not a proud moment, but, you know, it, it's an honest moment. Yeah, I was so thrilled when my kids called other drivers idiots. Because I was like, that's what I called them, which means I didn't call them something else. Now, is that good? No. But is that progress? Yes. Is progress good? Yes. That's your standard for Christian living. Because when something dumb happens and the wrong word comes flying out of my mouth, do I sit here and go, well, you know, I'm angry enough to use that today. No, that would be bad. Instead, it's like, don't do that one. I I spend more time in a mirror telling me that I'm stupid than I do any other human being on the planet. But that's the differentiation. It's not that I'm great and I'm awesome and I get everything right now. It's that I look back on my journey in Christ and go, I am so much farther along than where I was. And by his grace and by his mercy and by his teaching and by my obedience, you know where I'm going to be 20, 30 years from now if he gives me breath? I'm going to be so much farther along than I am now. That's the progress. So that's when I come in and I say, for that too, Christ died. Not because I'm like, I can wallow in this sin because Christ covers it. No, I can war against this sin because Christ covers it. That's what the law was always supposed to be with Israel. It was never supposed to be a get out of hell free card. It was never supposed to be a live however, offer your lamb and do this. That's what Jesus is warring against when he's cleansing the temple because what have they turned it into? Give your offering, slaughter your lamb, sprinkle some blood, and we're good here. We'll see you next year. Bye. Have a nice day, everybody. That was never the testimony that Israel is supposed to grant. It was never the way that Israel was supposed to walk. So let's continue. So Moses took the blood, we covered this, sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Notice that everything he's just read is whose side of the covenant now? That's their side. God makes the demands. What are the conditions? We've said, let's see if we can remember this one. What are God's conditions? Surrender. You give up what? Everything. So this is the covenant the Lord has made in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70, uh, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. I have no idea what to say about the sapphire clear as the sky. I have no idea. Poetic language, humans trying to explain the glories of God. I got nothing. So we're going to go right to this because this is cooler to me and I can explain this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. One, one too far. Go back. Go back. Return to me. There it is. <laughs> 
He did not stretch out his hand against the... <laughs> We're teaching, I think. It's like when, they, it's like when, you, when the doctor comes in and goes, do you mind if one of the, the, doctor, the, one of the students gets to do things? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> I mind greatly. Can they be in the room and listen? Sure. Keep your hands off me. I want the person who knows what they're doing. <laughs> Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. In other words, what, what lovely Protestant Baptist word would we use for that? <laughs> I'll take it. Just remember, we want good theology, and since, there, since God is in charge of all things, there is no such thing as luck, so it's a pot providence, because the providential hand of God is in charge of all things. <laughs> but I'll take it, though. Communion, potluck, fellowship. With who? With God. See, rewind. This is what Adam and Eve had. This is what was sent away. This is what they were sent away from. This is what they lost. See, when you get to the end of um, Genesis four, to, to Seth, to him was a saw, uh, To him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, why are people calling upon the name of God? Because they don't have Him. They don't have that fellowship and that communion. What does Israel suddenly have? With the law, with the redemption, the covering of the blood, they have communion with God. This is the lesson going forward. Move on, uh, go to the book of Revelation, the other place you'll see um, figurative language like this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne, and also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, Christian, your goal is communion with God. This is why I mentioned, was it, my weeks run together. It was last week or week before last. Israel's marker to the nations around them was their protection by God, their wealth in their crops, their, their health of their people, their, their birth rates. All of these things were their markers. In other words, health, wealth, and prosperity were the markers for Israel that they were God's covenant people. Ours is not. Ours is how we treat the world, how we deal with one another. Why? Because that shows a change of heart, leading to a change of mind, which leads to a change of action. That's why that is our marker. And that marker is given because what we're saying is, I desire communion with God more than anything else that this world could possibly provide. Therefore, I live in such a way that honors and pleases Him so that I will persevere by the power and comfort and working of his spirit, not mine. This goes back to the example earlier. This is why Christians don't expect to escape the difficulties of this world, but instead persevere, encourage, and live joyfully in the midst of them. Now you can go to 12. <laughs> Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the, sto the, give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. 
So in other words, if you've got questions, you've got Aaron, you've got her. Remember, her is one of the inner circle. He was the, uh, Joshua led the Israelites into battle, and Aaron and her were the ones holding Moses' arms up. So this is one of the good guys. But what other provision has been made? Go, um, go back to 12. Go back to 12. <laughs> there you go. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me in the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets. I'm getting whiplash. <laughs> and the law and the commandment, which I have written for instruction. Now go forward one. I got the wrong one. Nope, I'm sorry. You know what? Go to 14. You were right. Never mind. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> sorry. You okay back there? Thank you. Moses is being called up. Aaron and her are being left behind. But what else is left behind? It's not mentioned there. It's way too far back to keep going back to. Well, not the elder. Something even much more important. Not the tablets. He's going to get the tablets. But the tablets are going to record what? What did Moses read to them before they affirmed their covenant? The book of the covenant. All those laws that he wrote down. Is Moses taking that with him? No, he doesn't need it. Who needs it? The people. How are Aaron and her supposed to make determinations? With the book of the covenant, with, with everything that they have just agreed to. They have been provided for. Acts 14. In generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Part of the lesson Paul is teaching is that what we've understood is that all humanity knows that there is a God because they know that there's something out there that is giving us these good things. That was for the pagans. Much more for his people. If he's going to bring Moses, what is he going to ensure that they have? Another, even better witness. So rather than Moses to interpret these things, here, I'll just give you the things themselves so that you can read, understand, and know. Isaiah chapter 8. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law, to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light. It's kind of a big deal, isn't it? I don't need to go to Miss Cleo 995, come and she'll tell you all about the future. Come on now. Don't you remember that lady? Only Matt remembers that lady. You guys are all in the wrong generations, apparently. <laughs> Those commercials were awesome. She sat there with a little, gold, the little crystal ball thing and a bad Jamaican accent. I'm, I'm convinced to this day that was a fake Jamaican accent. Had to be. Why do we not need her? We have a book. Why do we not clamor for prophets to come down from on high? We have a book. Why can we sit here and actually argue, teach, debate, and understand who God is and what he has done? We have a book. What did Israel start off with? A book. They get Moses is gone, but the elders can make determinations because they have a book. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. I love that. Because what did Moses do? <laughs> I have no idea. But how long did he do it? Six days. You think like by the middle of day three, he and Joshua are sitting there playing cards like, you want to play another game? No. What do we do? I don't know. <laughs> All right, deal. <laughs> Why? 
Think about this. What does God do just for the fun of it? See, see, see I, I asked that question because you're like, I don't think anything. And you would be right. It's not like God's like, you know what? I'll, I'll, have, I'll have John the Baptist go because this is, this is going to be great. We're going to send him this crazy dude with really old parents. And, um, and he's going to make his own clothes and he's going to eat locusts. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's going to eat bugs. That's going to be awesome. Is that the planning of the Trinity? And the answer is no. There's fulfillment. There's, there's things going back and forward because God is demonstrating and showing how the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and whoever are being fulfilled, that the things that have been told are coming to pass. That's why this is done. So does God just like, okay, you know what? Let's make sure Moses knows that I'm really important. So have him wait for six days. Then he'll understand. (laughs) These things were written for who? For our instruction. God is a God of patience. He's patient with his planning, and he's patient with our sin, and he is accomplishing all of his good purposes. Christian, how are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live with patience, but that is a patience that trusts in who? Would you like a really good example of this? Genesis chapter 8. It came about in the 601st year, on the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Catch that. The first month... On the first of the month. So basically we're just going to, we're going to mess January 1st. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. How long would you have stayed on that ark once you saw that the earth was dry? About 12 seconds, right? You'd be like, we're out of here. Look, 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 a ground and green stuff. Let's go. In the second month, On the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. This is why you wait. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly upon the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. So if Moses goes out on January 1st, or Moses, if Noah goes out on January 1st, are we in a good place? It looks dry, but is it? No. So fast forward to February 27th, and God says, now go out. Now we're in a good place. Why? Because God has now commanded it. That's the distinction. If Noah looks and be like, oh, look, looks dry to me, let's go. Suddenly we're in a terrible place. Why? Because who should we have been waiting upon? Does no one need patience just so he can say, I'm patient? Look, I can, I can resist the temptation of the dry ground. Um, I don't need to go out there. I have the boat. Um, no, it's God has... Who put you on the boat? You walked in, God closed the door. You know when it's a good idea to come off the boat? When God opens the door again. That's why Moses waits. It's an example, not just to Moses, but to all of his people thereafter that we do these things on God's time. May not be when we like it, but it will be when it is right. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now begins the testing of Israel. Because when Moses has been around and when the angel of the Lord has been leading this people, how have they acted? They've just been nailing it, right? Like Moses said, go left, we go left. 
Moses said, stop, we stop. Moses said, walk this way, we walk this way. And the answer to that has been, of course not. Moses has said, gone left, and they've gone, why? It looks better if we go to the right. <laughs> you know, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night is leading them, and it's taking them a bit. But we could go, why are we out here in the middle of nowhere? There's not even a Starbucks. Just make sure you're all paying attention still. This becomes their testing because now God is on the mountain and now Moses is gone and now you have Aaron and her. And if you're not going to listen to Moses, what are the odds you're going to listen to Aaron and her? If you didn't listen when the prophet of God spoke, what's the odds you're going to listen to what the prophet of God wrote? Luke chapter 16. It's the uh, conclusion of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man is in torment and he wants Lazarus sent back to tell his brothers everything. He's like, go, Abraham, send back Lazarus. If, if you send back the dead guy, my brothers will listen, and they won't end up in this place that I'm in. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That's a two-sided statement. It's looking forward to the work of Christ, but it's also looking backward. Because if you're not willing to listen to all that God has handed down, you're not willing to listen to any of what God has handed down. And the failure of Israel is not that they couldn't do it perfectly. The failure of Israel is they didn't want to do it at all. Always remember, that's the failure of sin. The sinner isn't re- when the sinner goes, well, you know, I'd become a Christian, but whatever's about to come next is a complete and total lie every time. Because they go, well, but I just don't like the commandments about this, or I don't like the commandments about that. No, what you're really saying is I don't like the commandments. End of discussion. I don't like the fact that you get to tell me how I should live. I don't like that you're in charge when I want to be in charge. That's the real answer behind that. Because again, what are God's terms? Surrender. I give up. Short of surrender, there is no communion. And short of communion, there is no redemption. This is the line that the world does not wish to step across. This is the place that they cling to. They cling to their sin because they do what? They love this. They would rather have this than God. This is again the revelation of what is on the heart of the person. That's why the believer when exposed to their sin says, I know my bad. I'm working on it and I'm not there yet because what that's saying is the heart hates this evil but the flesh won a battle. That's okay. Not because the flesh won a battle, but because that's all that happened. The flesh won a battle. Christian, we are supposed to be playing a long game. This is why we don't lose simply because we've been defeated right here. But we go, okay, round two is coming. Get myself ready. Time to study. Time to pray. Time to grow in wisdom and knowledge because when we meet this sin again, you know what's going to happen? But not for me for it. That's the difference. And it may not be victory now. Look, there are things that I would have loved to have victory over 20 years ago. And you know when I started winning? Now. It's like, yay! And you know what? That should be the answer. Yay! I wanted to win then, but you know when I won? Now. Because now I get to tackle the other stuff. 
And I get to celebrate dumb little victories. Like, hey, my kids don't talk like I talked when I was their age. That is amazingly good news. It's amazingly good news. Because there's a whole lot of things that they don't do that I did. And I am eternally thankful to that. Because you know why they don't do it? Because they weren't raised with it as a good idea. Which means I got something right. I didn't get everything right, but I got something right. And as I walk in godliness, I'm going to get a lot more things right. Not because I'm good, but because Christ is good and he is growing in his control and his wisdom in my life. doesn't mean I'm better. It means he's better in me because I'm surrendered. I have given up being in charge and I'm doing according to all that he commands and all that he is leading. And that's the goal. That's what's going to get missed by the Israelites. And unfortunately... The way Exodus is structured, we're going to go through like five or six chapters before we get back to it. <laughs> so we get to do a bunch of other stuff. So we'll have to remind you, I'll remind ourselves of this when we get to the answer of their test. But Christian, just know that it's going to come. The test is always coming because God disciplines those who are his children. And the way we stand or fall is going to be determined by why we stand or fall. We'll stand if we're surrendered. Not because we won, but because he has already won. And so the goal is, what part of my life right now am I trying to rule over? Let's get rid of that. Let's surrender. The goal is, where am I trying to coddle the things of this world? And kill those things. Because the desires of God should supersede, and my desire for God should be the thing that guides who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Let's pray.